Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Big events, things that we think of like the beginning of the American Revolution, are actually events that come um, to have the shape they do because real, ordinary people made small choices that don't seem like big deals to them. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution Book of the Year Award winner, Serena Zabin, discussing her new book, The Boston Massacre, A Family History. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today we have a very special guest. Each year on the Journal of the American Revolution, we select a Book of the Year award winner, and for the year 2020, it's Serena Zabin. Her new book, The Boston Massacre, A Family History, made major waves in the historical community in the year 2020 because of its unique ability to show us once again that We never have the full story on even the most widely understood topics. I talked to Serena in this interview, and I asked her a very forward question. We've studied the Boston Massacre for years, centuries even. Why is now the time for a new book on it? And her answer is is fabulous. Her answer is the reason, as a discipline, that history is still around, that it still exists. I always like to say history is not about finding something new, but looking at something old in a new way. It's a mantra I live by and I hammer into the minds of my students. And she gives us an excellent example of the power of a statement like that, of a mindset like that. Not many people would be willing to take on a retelling, a reevaluation of an event that's really been held in in such almost mythological form as the Boston Massacre. But Professor Serena Zabin does just that. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Serena Zabin. Serena Zabin, thank you for joining us, and congratulations on winning the Journal of the American Revolution 2020 Book of the Year Award. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for the award. It's really thrilling. Tell us about your background. So I'm currently professor of history at Carleton College and actually chair of the history department. Um, But I didn't actually start my academic life as a historian. I actually started as a classicist. And only after I got a master's degree in Latin poetry did I discover that really what I was in love with was early America. And so I started all over and became an early Americanist. What inspired you to write a book about something as big, 
uh, and mythologized and sacred in, in some ways uh, as the Boston Massacre. Why this book and why now? So I started this book many years ago. It came out of a class that I teach at Carleton for first-year students called Trials in Early America that I had developed to um, actually work on an earlier book that I wrote on a slave conspiracy trial in New York in 1741. And we always ended the class with the Boston Massacre trials and the students would, you know, take a side and act it out and we would film it. And it was pretty fun. And then after I'd been teaching it for a couple of years, the librarian at Carleton from the Special Collections told me that we had an original copy of one of the pamphlets that was published right after the shooting, known as the short narrative, that contained a whole hundred or so, a little more, um, a hundred or so depositions written by, given by Bostonians right after the shooting about um, what they thought happened that night and also what was leading up to that night. And we had this original sitting here in the middle of Minnesota. So I brought my class down to read it and I actually taught it for a couple of years before I really paid attention to it. And then amazingly, in the very first deposition, I came across a mention of a soldier's wife who was talking with Bostonians a few days before the shooting. And I never really paid any attention to this particular deposition because the soldier's wife was making threats against Bostonians. And she said, you know, if there should be any um, upheaval, I would put stones in my handkerchief and I would just beat those people's brains out, those rebels' brains out. And most people had always focused on the violence, and I did too. But at some point, I read this again, and I thought, who are these soldiers' wives? And I didn't even know soldiers had wives. And what is she doing sitting in some Bostonian's house, drinking beer and talking about this? And really, at that point, I started to wonder, what is the story of soldiers' wives that I never knew existed? Talk about the importance of politics and propaganda in our memory of this event. So probably the one thing that everybody, all these listeners really knows about the Boston Massacre is that really, really famous engraving done by Paul Revere. And we know about it partly because it's one of the very few images we have from 18th century America besides portraits. Um, but also we know about it because it's really vivid and it tells a really vivid story. And it tells a story that the Sons of Liberty wanted to have told. And it continues to be the one that we know to this day. It got picked up really very soon after the shooting as a moment of propaganda. The, the, um, the shooting itself becomes known as the Boston Massacre almost immediately thereafter. And then really starting um, late in the 18th century and early in the 19th century, it comes to be seen as the first bloodshed of the American Revolution. And that's part of the sort of covering that I had to peel away to get at this story that it wasn't just a story about how do we get to the revolution, but actually what was happening at that moment. You write a great deal about the role of women in the 18th century British army. 
What are some of the critical roles that they played? Sure. And once I started looking into these soldiers' wives, I realized that they were ubiquitous. And in fact, they were actually part of the army that the British army, um, as was true of many early modern armies, but especially the British army, um, paid women a little bit of wages and certainly gave them rations to travel and live with the army, mostly to do laundry. Turns out laundry is, you know, doing laundry in the 18th century is an incredibly unpleasant um, activity. It's heavy and hot and unpleasant. Um, But, and men wouldn't do it. And in fact, in um, a few years later, when George Washington takes over the Continental Army, he thinks having all of these women as part of an army look really messy. And so he refuses to have any women originally as part of the Continental Army. And it turns out men won't wash their own clothes in the 18th century. And so Washington's army ends up actually with terrible lice and dysentery and other things that happen when you don't do your laundry. So the British army, having figured this out earlier, actually um, insists on having a certain number of women um, uh, travel with the army to do mostly laundry, as I said, some nursing, which is specialized work, some cooking. Men were actually willing to cook. There were many more women who traveled with the army than the official brass really wanted to pay for because, of course, they're members of families, too. They're not just labor, but they are seen as an essential piece of the army. So I think of the army really as a family institution. Talk about the 29th Regiment before the shooting. What did their North American journey look like? Right. So the 29th Regiment, of course, uh, is the regiment from which the men who actually shoot their guns on the streets of Boston in that night of March 5th, 1770, come from. So they're members of the 29th Regiment. So I started with them, and the 29th Regiment comes not first to Boston, but actually starts its North American journey in Halifax. They come to Halifax from Ireland in 1765, and they're there as part of a kind of troop rotation exercise that the army is trying to do. They're trying to remember to move troops all around the empire so that people don't stay anywhere too long, either because it's a really dismal posting or so that they don't get too comfortable. So they moved the, the, excuse me, in 1765, they moved the 29th Regiment to um, Canada, where really nobody wants to go, mostly because the reports of the weather are so terrible. Um, And And in fact, the weather is pretty terrible in Halifax in the 1760s. And they're there through 1768. The officers, whenever possible, flee Halifax. They spend every winter that they can somewhere further south, Boston, New York, Virginia, Barbados, if they can get there. So um, nobody wants to be in Halifax, but the um, enlisted men and their families have to stay. Describe life in Boston for these men that are so often viewed as outsiders. 
Sure. So when the 29th Regiment actually comes to Boston, they're brought because the governor is looking for some backup for his own authority. So they come really as part of this political fight, right, where the um, the governor feels like he's being disrespected, especially around issues of tax collection. Um, and the um, the people he's fighting with, largely the Boston selectmen, are not very happy about the idea that troops are supposed to come and keep order. They're offended by this idea that this is a Boston is a mobbish place where um, troops are necessary as a sort of quasi police force and they don't plan to make it very easy for the governor. And so when the governor finally tells them that there are troops coming, the selectmen say, fine, but they need to stay in these barracks that are out in Boston Harbor. And the governor says, I don't want them in Boston Harbor. I want them basically right in front of my house and right in front of the um, the townhouse, what we now know as the old state house, um, so that they can actually be in the heart of the town and keep order. And they have this standoff. And for the first month or so, the soldiers end up camping out actually on Boston Common in tents. And other ones are staying actually like on the floor of Faneuil Hall where people are stepping over them to try to, you know, get to court. And so um, finally, especially because, of course, New England has an early snowfall, um, the people, the selectmen and the governor come up with a compromise where they actually rent space from Bostonians for all of these soldiers and their families to live. They can't requisition it. They can't just claim it as part of the Quartering Act because actually the Quartering Act says that troops have to stay in proper barracks if they exist. So once the army ends up renting spaces, renting warehouses to use as barracks, but they also rent people's spare rooms and their sheds and their basements, you know, any place that they could put people to live, Bostonians are willing to rent. What ends up happening is Bostonians turn into landlords and landladies for these several regiments of the British army. And as they're spread throughout Boston, turns out that they become Bostonians' neighbors. They're not, of course, people, you know, they don't always get along very well. They're sort of squished into this little peninsula, and there are a number of conflicts and there are a number of hostilities, but there also are quite a number of relationships that are far more positive, especially between young men, young men and young women, many of whom end up marrying local uh, marrying soldiers, um, from the army. In what ways did Boston accept these men into their daily lives? Oh, I have a couple of favorites. So, um, so my, my absolute favorite one is a soldier who has a sort of literary bent. Um, and he ends up, um, he's captured, well, captured is maybe a little strong. He, he, um, he's found in bed with a local young woman, a 20-year-old, by her grandfather, who's actually a son of liberty. And um, he 
creates this whole soap opera in which he says, oh, you can't make me get out of this woman's bed because I'm married to her. turns out they don't get married for several more months. And when they finally do, her father is so upset that he you know, practically collapses. And then he has an altercation with his son-in-law um, in which the soldier threatens to shoot him with a pistol. Um, and the soldier finally ends up in prison with actually all of the soldiers who are implicated in the Boston massacre. Um, but in the end, the soldier writes this tell all memoir in which he actually names the names of his in-laws and talks about how injured he was by his attempt to marry and go to bed with this woman. Um, so I just found him this really charming, hilarious rake. Um, but there are many other stories of, um, you know, of, of young women who defy their more political fathers and say, actually, I do want to have a relationship with these, um, with these soldiers. And indeed, some of these parents end up looking at soldiers more as sons-in-laws than as an invading army. Talk about the event known as the Boston Massacre. How does our popular understanding of it get it wrong? So the most important thing is we imagine that what happened that night is a fight between strangers where people don't know each other and there's this moment of hostility and um, and across a big gap of misunderstanding, soldiers fire on civilians because they see them as sort of essentially different kinds of people. But in fact, what really happened that night was that there were a whole bunch of neighbors together in the square. So the people who end up shooting their guns, and one of them had just married a local, another one was, um, you know, kind of good friends with one of the men who walks through trying to figure out what's going on. There, It's a place full of people who know each other. Um, and that. I think really shifts our understanding of what kind of shooting happened that night. Talk about how these soldiers existing Bostonian relationships helped them in such a heated and tumultuous time as the aftermath of the shooting at the Boston massacre. So in some ways, absolutely. Um, certainly for the captain who is um, the first one to go to trial um, and where he's accused, of course, of giving an order to fire. And um, he has spent a lot of time, um, you know, at parties and dinners and um, dances and all kinds of other social events with other Bostonians. And um, it's not very hard for his defense attorney, who's then John Adams, to actually put a whole bunch of people um, in the jury who know him pretty well. And that certainly does help get him acquitted. There's no question. Um, the, it's a little more difficult, of course, for the, um, for the privates, because what happens at that point is um, their, their jury actually consists largely of people who are not local, people from elsewhere in the county. Um, so they don't call on those same connections. But in the end, really, um, you know, they're not 
harm. There's no threat of lynching. There's nothing like that. People did seem to have actually some sympathy for these soldiers as as individuals, as people. Um, and um, and in that way, it seems that the town did um, not rally around them. They're very angry and horrified by these deaths. Um, but they also don't um, see this as an enormous rupture. And in fact, um, of the marriages that I found between civilians and soldiers, about half of them take place after the shooting. So it doesn't really sour Bostonians on the idea of marrying soldiers. Where does the 250-year-old image of, you know, the cruel redcoats murdering innocent Bostonians really come from, in your opinion? Well, I think there's two reasons. Um, One of them really has to do with what happened right after the shooting, right? The moment that um, everybody looks at, everybody with a political bone in his or her body, right? So all the Sons of Liberty, all the governor, the um, the officers, and they all think, uh-oh, how can we actually um, make some political hay out of this moment? And it's in that context, of course, that Revere's engraving, um, you know, Revere makes his engraving based on um, this earlier picture um, done by Henry Pelham. And, um, and it's in that context that both sides are collecting these depositions, which are really trying to lay the blame, right? And that's what both sides are trying to do. And, you know, unsurprisingly, really, um, the Sons of Liberty win that blame game, partly because Revere's engraving is so powerful. I mean, he has this um, officer waving his um, sword, urging on soldiers who are leaning forward with bayonets and these you know, innocent-looking kind of middle-class Bostonians standing in the street, except for the ones that have fallen over with all kinds of gore pouring out of them, and um, this poor little innocent dog standing there looking at the viewer saying, you know, what in the world has happened to loyalty? And that's a really effective picture for saying, yes, these are bloodthirsty, excuse me, bloodthirsty Bostonians. Um, And so that's one, excuse me, bloodthirsty soldiers, um, which is one piece of it. And then part of that story gets picked up again in the trial when neither side says anything ever about the connections between soldiers and civilians. They make no reference to the marriages um, that happened between them or the baptisms that you know, soldiers' families do in the local churches, asking local Bostonians to act as godparents. Um, None of that comes up in the trial. None of that. That's like a story that is completely forgotten and covered over even by the next year or two. And so that's a piece of it. And then the next piece is that really in the 19th century, as, um, as Americans start talking about how do they want to remember their origins, they're actually not that interested in a story of um, Bostonians who maybe got to know these soldiers at all, right? And the story that that Adams told in the trial is that the people who really were part of the 
the brawling with the soldiers were not real Bostonians. They were Irish people. They were people of mixed race. They were sailors. Um, They're not real Bostonians. And that really stuck. And in the 19th century, people thought, why should we commemorate and honor people who we think of as so de classe? How do you want this book to be remembered? I want the book to remember to be remembered as, as as one of the key pillars for helping us remember that um, big events, things that we think of like the beginning of the American Revolution, are actually events that come um, to have the shape they do because real ordinary people made small choices that don't seem like big deals to them, right? So decisions that young women might make about who they're going to marry, whether they're going to defy their fathers, right? Decisions that men might make about, you know, whether they're going to stay with their new wives and desert the army or whether they're going to try to convince their wives to come with them. Those are all pieces that make up the story of the American origins, right? Our origins really consist of these very human connections between people. And so I want people to think, okay, when we pay attention, not just to the guys in the wigs, but also to these soldiers' wives that we've never thought about before, to privates, right, to deserters, that they have a story to tell us about our origins. Serena Zabin, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. The music played in this episode include works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>